I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello, Ben. Hi, Agnes. How are things? Things are very good, thank you. How are things with you? Excellent. Yeah, really good. Really good. Incredibly busy. Mm. Working on a new project, actually, called Common Futures Conversations, which is very exciting. Yeah. It's a project where Chatham House, in partnership with the Robert Bosch Stiftung, are going to be looking at how to engage younger people in political dialogues youth youth talking to the youth how old are the youth the youth the youth are not that youthful <laughs> the youth are like my age um sorry our age all right, all right. 21 long... 21 to 30 21 to 30 is is the scope of this project not, um, so actually not my age <laughs> sorry mate that's why i said it i was honest uh, but then i got the, the long running joke about how much of a child oh, you are. Oh, oh, oh. um yeah 21 to 30 and it's a project involving 13 countries Ooh. in africa and europe and we're basically going to be running a series of online events basically around trying to get younger people to talk about the issues that they think are going to challenge their futures collectively be that climate change or the future of work or migration mm-hmm. um, and so we are currently on the hunt for some young people to come to a few workshops to help plan the thing and we're just getting down to the business end of working out who's Actually going which is it. really exciting we've got some really amazing people involved so that's brilliant so oh. yeah so it's it's all go but it's good how are things in the world today world the world of today the, the world, world today <laughs> to the, the, the world today <laughs> it is amazing actually i mean because joe biden came to speak last week who you missed indeed um and he said the world today has never been so like uneven or like no what did you say the world today has never been so tumultuous I what, just thought, what did Alan think of this because so I think you. your coverage has been increasingly patchy in the last <laughs> the last few issues there's been some absolute bangers and a few that have take that back take that uh, back, I'm with Joe on this I have to say um, no of course the world today is a, is a flawless publication thank you available in all good online subscriptions through our website <laughs> um <laughs> no well today is good we are we are launching some exciting things as well we're hoping to launch a article competition in december aimed cool. at 16 to 19 year olds also youthful youth yeah love to youth there's a theme in this episode yeah and our next issue is going to be a youth issue the youth issue so what issues of the youth scott Lots of them, mate. You have to wait. You have to wait and see. Okay. Um, but we are sat in the Chatham House studio in the dark. We are in the dark. This is a slight technical hitch that we have. Uh, we're we're coping with. Yeah, I think. we're we're doing well. We're it's adapting. Fine. It's atmospheric, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think um, <laughs> these are dark and brooding times, and so we have come to brood darkly in the Chatham House Media Studio. <laughs> It's a little bit spooky. Yeah. Um, um, what other exciting news have we had? Oh, we, yeah, we're now listened to in how many countries, Ben? Yes, we are incredibly close to a landmark stat. You know I love a good stat, Agnes. <laughs> just... Ben loves a stat so much that when he plays cricket, after he plays cricket, he gets a data, like, spreadsheet of how you've done. Look, there's no... That's just the captain's foible, but you it's wonderful. It. I do know my batting average for the first time in... <laughs> <laughs> in oh years, mate. You're such a man of the people. In years, I know. Call me Ben Ben Horton. 
<laughs> um, but yes, so so this stat, this excellent stat that is actually um, statastic, uh, is that we have listeners in 99 countries. 99. 99 countries. We are so close to an impressive stat. We are <laughs> one country away. So what countries from three are, we, figures. are we missing out We're on? We're missing, well, we are missing Slovakia. Slovakia. If Slovakia. anybody knows anybody in Slovakia, Please get them to just press play. They don't even have to listen. Yeah, this is we just, just a, we a just desperate need the stats. call. A desperate call to reach that hundred before the next episode. We are desperate. If you've got friends in we're not, Chile, we're not that if you've got friends in Ecuador, if yeah. you've got friends in Greenland, if you've got friends in Slovakia. Democratic Republic of the Congo? Indeed. Yeah. If you've got friends in South Sudan, if you've got friends in Libya, we would love for you to suggest that they listen to the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but Or indeed Papua New Guinea. We're not fussy at all. We also we're... don't want to come across as desperate, so, you know, we're cool. Yeah. Or indeed, don't do that. Yeah, don't whatever. do that. Whatever, whatever you want. Whatever. Fine. I'm sure someone in Chile will at some point listen and we'll have our hundredth yeah. uh, country. Hundredth listener, that or, would, that really would be depressing. <laughs> as you, yeah, no, we're, we're over that. As yes. you pointed out, you, we just need somebody to go on a gap here, don't we? Yeah, yeah. Please do. If you've got any, <laughs> if you've got any bright young things that are heading off uh, to Laos or Cambodia, yeah. then that would also work. That would also work incredibly well. Um, yeah. Anyway, so who did you speak to this week, Ben? This week, I spoke to Paul Brannigan. Mm-hmm who is a lecturer and political sociologist at Manchester Metropolitan University. And he's an author in our September issue, the September issue of International Affairs. He's co-authored a paper with Richard Giulianotti about soft power and about countries hosting the Football World Cup. Oh, cool. And so he's specifically focusing in this article on the backlash that has that Qatar has endured Mm -hmm. since winning the bids to become the 2022 host of the World Cup. Um, And it's led to sort of greater scrutiny on their record over human rights and their general preparedness for big events like that from an infrastructure point of view. And it's a really interesting chat, actually. Uh, And I suppose I hadn't really thought about it before, but yeah, you are suddenly, as a, as a nation state, building a huge amount in a short period of time. Massive amount of infrastructure. Yeah. Same with the Olympics yeah. and all of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, it's so interesting how to think about that detached from the actual spectacle of the sport itself. Yeah. Thinking about the fact that, apart from the Olympics, it's probably the biggest single event in terms of television mm. that you can be involved with. Yeah, so if you're the host country, it's a tremendous like tool for projecting a certain image of yourself, which we touch on actually in the interview with regard to Russia mm-hmm. this year. And I just think, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's such a sort of seminal moment, but it has these unintended consequences, which yeah. is what Paul looks at in the article. So Interesting. Yeah, it was really interesting. But who did you speak to, Agnes? So this week I spoke to Glade Alan, who is the Senior Research Fellow in the Energy, Environment and Resources Department here at Chatham House. And we spoke about green building and green housing. Green is my favourite colour. I, w- I was buildings. asked this recently, what's my favourite colour? Which I don't think I've been asked since I was about Actually, six. To be fair, I'm, it's blue, is which it? in no way is meant to reflect any political... Tory. Lean. <laughs> Tory. It really Finally isn't. Proven. It really isn't. Um, but I just, yeah, I think blue, various shades of blue. 
No, green is definitely my favourite. Usably, you like green. Mm. You like green. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And uh, discussing sort of green um, housing, largely uh, in the MENA region, which is really interesting. So, should we have a listen? Fascinating. Yeah, let's have a listen. So, I'm here with... Glade Lan, who is a senior research fellow at the Energy, Environment and Resources Department here at Chatham House. Welcome, Glader. And we're here to talk today because you've just come back from Jordan. That's right. I was there for the closing ceremony for a project that we had led in Jordan as part of our Moving Energy Initiative, um, which which looks at easing the energy pressures that are felt in countries that are hosting large numbers of refugees. And Jordan is one of our focus countries. And one of the projects that we had pursued in Jordan, following a lot of consultation there with government and the humanitarian sector and various NGOs and local actors, was to experiment with the idea of green affordable homes because there weren't any and there was a huge there is a huge housing problem um, in Jordan with about maybe over 1.3 million people living in very substandard accommodation and the need for a lot of new buildings because of the refugees and the growing population so we um only one green affordable house had really been tried before. Um, Can I ask you yes, quickly? Sure. When you say green affordable house, in sure. my head, I think of I don't know some sort of Scandinavian wood house that's you know heated by solar panels. And what does what does a green house mean? This is a good question, um, and I think we wanted to challenge the assumption mm. that when you said green home. It referred to something very high tech, something that only you know a very wealthy person could afford to have built. A lot of houses in, the, especially outside of the cities, get built in quite an informal way, usually by informal you know, builders, contractors, um, and they're not necessarily very well suited to the climate. They become very hot inside in the summer and often damp and cold inside in in the winter because Jordan suffers quite extremes of temperature and and actually climate change is exacerbating that. So what we're talking about when we say green is really as efficient as possible in both energy and water as you can be on a budget. Mm. So actually it looks towards more or less towards meeting the building code requirements in Jordan and most of the housing doesn't at present and it's not enforced but we were looking to do it in a way that ordinary families could afford the new builds were actually provided through a revolving loan system with families being subsidized for the additional green materials and the retrofitting so improving existing homes was done by um by providing a subsidy and and a lot of volunteers joined in as well in improving the level of comfort in those homes through things like double glazing, a solar water heater, rainwater storage and reuse of grey water, um, ventilation, sealing up cracks, which is a big problem, and getting rid of condensation. For the new builds, you're looking at orientation. So how can you position a building so that it gets less, maybe less sun through the windows in the in the summer months and stays warmer in the winter months. 
various ways of doing that. And when you're when you're building a new house, you, you also have the opportunity to add in insulation mm-hmm. inside the wall. So that was that was one of the main mechanisms of making those houses more comfortable. And what are you? What are they building the houses out of? Are we talking about concrete or because you know bits of Russia, most houses are wood because they're warm in the winter and cool in the summer. Um, yeah, are, they, are we talking concrete or? Yeah, these are your very widely used kind of breeze blocks mm-hmm. and concrete with this these kind of blue sheets of pretty standard insulation that goes in between mm-hmm. the, the two types of blocks. There are other things that can be done to improve the insulation um, and one of the challenges was that we wanted to try something a bit more experimental and yet you have to first have the acceptance within the mm. community and people who are investing in a new home don't want to try anything different because this is their life savings or this is their you know they're putting they're putting a large amount of their very meager income towards paying back this revolving loan so I think there was a reluctance to try something like external insulation or new types of material that we could have done although and we did this project entirely through local partners mm-hmm. um, we worked with Jordan Green Building Council and Habitat for Humanity who'd been working for many years in Jordan although they'd, and they'd worked together once before on building this one green affordable home so they want to take forward some quite radically different ideas but they need funding to fund a whole house you know so Mm. we had a limited amount through through the moving energy initiative that we wanted to use in the most effective way in a way to start the experiment and to learn from it yeah because i can see that once presumably once you have one house built and people can see how much exactly that cost and what it looks like then you might be getting somewhere to that's exactly and that's exactly what happened in fact we we retrofitted 48 homes and built three new affordable homes or or supplied the green materials for those and ensured that they they fulfilled the criteria uh, as part of this project and then and and then from that and it was interesting at the closing ceremony you had people there from the communities who were saying that yes once these houses are up more people wanted to have them mm. and more people wanted the retrofitting done there was a really big demand for it whereas initially people had been wary they didn't understand the concept and green buildings council worked with them to to raise awareness of the kind of improvements this would make mm. and that, i think those improvements it was interesting because they one of the unexpected unintended consequences was that once families saw their houses being improved and there were quite a few volunteers working on this project and they got very close to the communities and so they were having their windows redone and having these solar water heaters added and things like that but there was no decoration aspect to this but the families themselves started to join in and make home improvements like to actually buy paint or clear their gardens and I thought that was really interesting it sort of shows that if somebody is willing to give you a hand up you know especially Improving your home. It's a bit mm. like DIY SOS, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. You, you feel more empowered, actually, and you feel like you want to. Yeah, well, it's about if place. other people are investing in you, then you feel like you can invest in yourself, don't you, really? That's so. right. That's right. And I think that whole self-reliance and development of the local market mm. that you're sort of touching on was was very much the, the aim, the objective of this, this project. We wanted it to be able to take off almost organically. It probably needs 
now a step up maybe to do 100 houses mm. or something like that to show a whole neighbourhood could work. But really it started from such a low base yeah. that we were very pleased that they got this far in such a short space of time. It was really in the period of one year. That's amazing. That this was achieved. And do you have, is there sort of local government support for this or do people at the top want this to happen and are prepared to help? Well, initially I think that efficient you know, or green affordable homes was not very much on the agenda at the national level. And I I hope through some of the awareness that, that this project has done, it is now on the agenda. And and though housing was always, of course, of course, affordable housing was always there. But I think adding in this green element is is something new and something that government seemed very, very interested in. Um, we had the, 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 the event that we held was under the patronage of the Minister of Social Development and she sent uh, her Secretary General to give a keynote saying that he definitely wanted to, they definitely wanted to see this scaled up in Jordan. We had representatives from uh, from the Ministry's housing of, of planning and public works of, um, of, of energy, you know, in the room. And all the comments were positive. In fact, some very concrete ideas came out. <laughs> some concrete ideas. <laughs> some very, uh, some very uh, real ideas came out for, for building whole neighbourhoods in cooperation with, with, for instance, the Housing and Urban Development Commission in Jordan, which buys land for the government and allots plots, a certain amount, a certain amount of plots for affordable housing. So it would be amazing if the partnership could then you know Link up. build on this and 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 really show that it could be done at scale you can see that the government subsidies for the more efficient materials definitely helps because the solar water heater already there's a there's a program in Jordan where you get 50% off and you can apply for that through the community based organization so that became you know we we benefited from that yeah. within the project but to save to actually bring down energy bills, uh, one of the recommendations that our partners came up with was also to target the more middle-income mm-hmm. homes uh, where much more electricity is used. And essentially that also benefits, you know, it benefits government because the lower blocks of electricity are highly subsidised. Right, whereas the middle ones, less so. The mid- Well, the lower blocks of electricity are subsidised for yeah. everybody and then, yes, it goes up and then it goes from up. there on. So, yes, but they use a lot more electricity. So Also, I suppose if you sort of targeted those middle classes, you could also potentially make this aspirational almost or fashionable even. I think so. And there's a lot of interest. I mean, it's not just in Jordan, but across the Middle East in green buildings and in, in building differently. I think you will see it as a trend in future. I've met a lot of architecture students from the region who are kind of looking back to go forward, you know, looking at some of the methods of architecture, the sort of culturally and climatically Hmm. appropriate methods that could be incorporated with modern materials and modern design practices to try to build better cities, I suppose, and especially with the aridity, you know, the very, very high temperatures, but harnessing the sun, mm-hmm. you know, creating passive buildings is going to be, I think, a bit a big trend that we'll see there. I love the phrase passive building. What does that mean? Passive building. I think it comes from a German term, passive house. Okay. Um, and it's, it's about, in a way, the building doing the work for you, so yeah. you don't really need so much supply so as you know you know our our houses our flats are connected to the electricity grid and we use we use gas for maybe heating or cooking we now see houses 
and Germany is probably a prime example, they actually give back energy because they have solar panels and they're so well insulated <laughs> and so efficient that yeah. they're not really using much in, um, internally. So actually the World Green Buildings Council and many others are now looking towards an agenda that all you know that the whole world should work to in terms of having net zero buildings by 2050 and some cities have committed to their cities becoming net zero by 2030 you know some of the more developed cities but some of the developing countries as well some in Africa are looking at that net zero 2050 agenda which is really radical it's mm. changing design not just of buildings but also infrastructure the way we deliver water the way we have our roads planned you know the way we use green space and yeah. the materials as well the actual carbon content of materials some people are looking that far as well that's so interesting so what cities have sort of signed up to this um okay so <laughs> the top of your head. Sorry. there's a few there's a few initiatives so there's a big one under the UN mm. Habitat 3 which is the new urban agenda that is that is that is uh, certainly pushing for a, a radically lower carbon you know urban design and urban planning and building um but that's also of course combined with other aspects of sustainability such as zero waste mm -hmm. and and uh, creating more equality for people who live in cities uh, there's the c40 initiative which which is developing models of of much lower carbon cities with i'm guessing around maybe 27 cities around the world yeah. both high income and low income um i think i mean even when we were in i think when we were in africa last time about a year ago i'm sure there was Abidjan in Cote d'Ivoire, Accra in Ghana, uh, Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. Mm -hmm. They'd all signed up to this, um, I think they've all signed up to this maybe Net Zero 2050 agenda or the C40 agenda, with, you know, from a city perspective, yeah. like the mayors of the, the cities. And that's that. interesting. I, I think it's fascinating in Africa because I'll give you an example. When, when we were in Abidjan, um, You've got these amazing trees that are in the cities, like beautiful hardwood trees. Uh, my colleague and I were walking down a street and we looked up with a, a fairly large road next to us, not too busy. But we heard this, can you describe it as a sort of a chattering, mm. high-pitched chattering, and we looked up and there was, it was full of fruit bats. Just the whole tree was full of these roosting <laughs> oh fruit God. bats. It was, it was incredible. And you wouldn't want to lose that as the city developed. No. I mean, actually, when you look at uh, cities in rich countries, we're trying to get the green back, right? Yeah. We're, trying to, we're trying to re-green the cities. And it's, it's an aspect that, that not only improves um, health through, through air quality, but it's, it's the kind of cities that you want to go to. You know, we love our parks in London. It's very, very good for tourism and business. So I think that's, that will be the challenge for those cities. How do you grow and develop without losing that connection with nature yeah. and building in a way that doesn't tie you into an increasing demand for energy and water from, you know, high carbon sources? And that means building differently, mm. retrofitting. I think, you know, another another aspect is that there's a lot of potential for looking at how things have been done in the past as well as, you know, radically, radically new design. There's a fascinating project in Zaatari refugee camp 
in Jordan where they uh, where um, there's two projects actually one's by Oxfam so I'll talk I know a bit more about that one than the other one um, so Oxfam wanted to build a school they decided to use a very different technique uh, in Zatari most of the facilities and the shelters are kind of uh, they look like corrugated iron and they get very hot mm-hmm. in the summer even though they're considered some of the best you know sort of shelters available but they get very very hot in the summer temperatures get up to about 44 degrees so you can imagine it's not very comfortable you know and and then of course people want to to use fans and there's not enough electricity they don't do shelter but they they build a school and they try something very very different which is a technique called super adobe it was developed it's a very old technique in a way, but it was developed in its modern form by an Iranian-American architect called Nader Khalili. And what it does is to build with basically bags filled with the local earth or sand mm-hmm. and piled up on each other, usually in sort of dome-like formations. But you can do quite a lot of... You can you can design, uh, you know, in quite a few different ways with it. Uh, and then you sort of... You use plaster, but it's from natural materials like a, uh, well, adobe, basically. So um, a bit sort of like wattle and daub. A bit like wattle yeah. and daub, <laughs> exactly. So everybody, you know, most people uh, will have had this technique in their country at yeah. some point in the past. Um, and he revived it in quite a modern way. You can you can look it up on the internet and there's some beautiful examples of houses that people have built with this technique in places like California and mm. Greece. But this was done in a refugee camp context and they involved the Syrians in the building of it. And some of them had even known this technique because they, if they came from the rural areas, they were even using this for storage of um, grain Oh wow. um, okay. yeah, in, par- in parts of Syria. Others were less familiar with it. And so it's a, it's a technique that involves the whole community. You can learn it in about a day how to do it. The school looks beautiful. Mm. It's painted white. It's seven degrees cooler in summer and five degrees warmer in winter. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Which is incredible. And, and it just provides such a beautiful space. Now, the interesting thing is that in terms of expanding that to use it as shelter... The thinking is probably the government wouldn't be that keen because they don't like to see anything too permanent in a refugee camp. I'm, yeah, I was going to ask you this. So, right. Because we we had your colleague Owen on a couple of mm-hmm. months ago to talk about the Moving Energy Initiative um, and around, yeah, refugee camps and, you know, water and access to that sort of stuff. Does the government re- want to help people settle, really? Or are they actually sometimes happier with slightly substandard housing that might mean people move on? They're in a bit of a, between a rock and a hard place. The government's been extremely, and the people have been extremely welcoming. The size of the refugee population compared to the national population is huge. And, you know, what I imagine they have about one million Syrians now. I think about 650,000 of those are registered refugees. You know, others might be extended family and so on. But 80% of those live you know outside of camps they live mainly in cities mm. so they're already there yeah. you know most of them one or two family members will probably be working the government has opened up working rights actually which has been extremely welcomed mm. by the humanitarian sector and and the refugees certainly when you speak to refugees you say is there one thing you can change you know if you could change one thing to improve your life what would it be and let's say the right to work mm. 
So that's that's changing. Yes, the camps are controversial. I think Zaatari is Jordan's fourth largest city. And issues like putting in place a sewerage system have been controversial. A lot of them have been overcome. I think there's been a certain level of acceptance that they'll be here for some time. I mean, now, yes, there is talk about return and you know that a lot of Syrian families given the choice they will try to return yeah obviously people do they do usually have a strong attachment to where they came from didn't want to be refugees in the first place how that number will settle in future I don't know but I think for the time being there is I mean there's a certain benefit to Jordan at the moment in terms of having accepted those refugees you know their fiscal deficit has been eased a little by mm. the aid money even though they've had you know there's, there's social pressures that accompany a refugee crisis if you look to other con- other countries would say you know jordan is relatively um better off yeah. i think than many of the refugee hosting countries a lot of that's got to do with the level of organization they have i mean jordan's been taking refugees since 1948 and they've had waves mm. basically each conflict in the region has brought a new set of of refugees so they're relatively well organized compared to a country like Greece even yeah. um, which has much less many many less uh, many many fewer refugees but um but a much worse situation and they have in Jordan a response plan to the Syria crisis which was designed with government UN other major NGOs and and civil society partners and it's it's very good um housing is one of the priorities energy is one of the priorities mm. uh, water um, amongst many other things, and they're looking to channel the aid towards areas that benefit the welfare of refugees and the longer-term development priorities. Mm. So they've been quite organised in that way, and I suppose, yeah. In that, but getting back to the uh, the the permanence issue, yes, I think nobody wants to see camps lasting a long time. Yeah. They're not great places to live. But in terms of the shelter that that particular technique could provide, it's, it's interesting because the the construction engineer who is very passionate about this is a Jordanian lady from Oxfam who I was speaking with. She said she would love to build uh, one of these shelters and bring uh, government officials mm. to see it and then destroy it in front of their <laughs> eyes because the fantastic thing about this technique is it just biodegrades mm. into the land, unlike actually all the metal, the steel container type um, caravans that were already there, which won't do yeah. that. I wanted to finish up by going back to the the cities question because um, this idea of being carbon neutral um, by 2050, I can see that in certain German towns where you can build new houses from scratch... I can see that being quite achievable. Do you think London could do that? We're sat here in St James's Square in a listed building, which is beautiful, but a bit of a nightmare when it comes to that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot you could do. I don't know enough about the emissions that are implicit in the whole running of... London, it's it's hard to imagine, but I don't think it's impossible. There's growing experience in of, of retrofitting listed buildings 
and it's something that we really want to see in our program because how can you go to other places and say yeah. you should have super efficient <laughs> buildings and homes and infrastructure if we can't do it at home and it's something that we've also you know we've also made this this point very strongly in the past and and it's true the the comeback is always it's a listed building but there are things like um the way that we have our heating controls and air conditioning that could be adapted um there's certainly ways that it could save us money mm-hmm. i think i mean london overall i would like to see a big change in the in the uh, regulations on renting because most people in london you know we live in yep. rented properties and one's landlord is not going to make the investment in insulation or double glazing mm. or you know s- some expensive yes double sash window or whatever you need because he or she doesn't pay the electricity bills mm. now what the government is talking about in the clean growth plan is to make uh, all rented accommodation uh, meet at least uh, C you know in terms of the energy mm-hmm. efficiency rating by 2030 that's quite late yeah and in the Netherlands they've set it at for 2020 right to reach that level I think or even beyond that I think we could move a lot faster yeah. I think landlords would respond to it if they can't rent their property until it meets a certain standard and maybe it could be slightly different for for uh, older properties but basically it would also prompt the efficiency services market to step up and provide those products and, mm. and to bring the, their price down as well because more people would be demanding them. So that's one side of it. I think the regulation could help a lot. And then it's a case of obviously transport and making mm. our, because London's got a great public transport system, which is, you know, it's one of the, I think it's it's, it's one of the things that we should be very proud of, um, needs upgrading in places and and certainly but you go to New York or anywhere else like we I know we whinge about the tube and we love to whinge about trains but we're so lucky we're in London we're so lucky we're so lucky and there's there's more that we can do you know we know that Sweden runs on biogas it's buses on biogas we know that you know other countries are using you know experimenting with with hydrogen buses now um there's there's possibilities even though London's got very odd, you know, wonky streets, mm. there's lots of opportunities to make it safer for cyclists. I mean, yeah. I cycle to work and back every day and sometimes that's a bit hair-raising. Yeah. And I think that just simply adding the cycle paths wherever possible would encourage more people to cycle. As you've seen actually in places like Vauxhall and yeah. uh, Blackfriars where, where, where the mayor has, has, has really um, created those cycle paths. They're, they're full, you know, people use them. Mm. Um, well, we have massively digressed, but that was so interesting, Leda. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, thanks so much for coming to speak to us and good luck with the next stages of this project. Thank you. So now I'm joined by Paul Brannigan. Paul is a political sociologist at Manchester Metropolitan University uh, and his research explores how states conduct foreign policy through the staging of major international events. His recent article, co-authored with Richard Giulianotti, is titled The Soft Power, Soft Disempowerment Nexus, The Case of Qatar, 
and it's available to read in our journal International Affairs. Paul, thanks ever so much for joining us today. Pleasure. So your article looks specifically at Qatar's hosting of the 2022 Football World Cup. But before we go into that, could you just talk us a bit through the background to this? What do you mean by soft power? Okay, uh, well, to kind of make a story short, uh, a most sort of academic spiel will give you uh, the line that soft power is the ability to get what you want through attraction rather than coercion. So we break that down. The, the, the concept was originally coined uh, by Harvard professor Joseph Nye in 1990. And what Nye really sort of put his finger on here was that international society is changing so quickly, and in particular since the Cold War, you know, introduction of inter, uh, sorry, communication technology, satellite communications, whatever it may be. There are new sort of ways of power and communication emerging uh, within international affairs. The one that I sort of really came up with, um, I guess, was sort of two forms of power. So if we look at power sort of really, really, really broadly as the ability for me or a country or a group of people to get what we want, and I would argue there's sort of two ways of doing that. And the first and sort of more conventional form of power um, is what Nye calls hard power. So this is usually in state terms. It might be getting what you want through military invasion, for example, um, or economic incentives. So in this case, you know, we look at America, huge military, um, huge sort of, you know, um, GDP and, and you know, financial economy. It can pretty much get what it wants through using those sort of two forms of power. In the same way, if I'm stronger than someone, I might be able to get what I want, uh, normally illegally, but if I'm stronger, I could, I could use my sort of force, uh, a physical force, as it were, to get what I want. And what Nye's really sort of put his finger on is that this is other side of power, which isn't just about coercion. And this is really where soft power comes in. Um, and sort of it tends to be called the sort of power of attraction. So the understanding would be is, even if I'm not as strong as you, or I don't have as much money as you, if I can attract you, um, so say we look at states, you know, it could be a very, very effective and efficient state, <clears throat> excuse me, um, in terms of its institutions or its accomplishments. You know, if a state tomorrow wins a World Cup, say a state like Iceland, for example, that would be hugely, hugely attractive for a lot of countries. And a lot of countries would want to know how Iceland has done it. And therefore, they acquire power through leadership, um, innovation, and also prestige. And of course, you know, as we know through our history, it's not just the strongest um, in terms of physicality that tend to sort of, you know, win these games, but it could be a person who's beautiful, both in terms of looks, um, but in terms of values and personality. So what soft power really is, is sort of the opposite, if you like, um, to physical force. It's getting what you want through simply being attractive. So... Uh, your article is titled The Soft Power, Soft Disempowerment Nexus. What does that second part mean? What's, what's soft disempowerment as you see it? Okay, so this was, this was something that we sort of really looked to, to add to Nye's work, myself and also my colleague Richard Giulianotti, who, as you said, co-authored the paper. So the one thing we, we've sort of really identified, I think, is if I sort of reverse it back, if we, if we sort of break it down to sort of people relations, and if I asked you, Ben, you know, do you think someone's attractive? You'd certainly have an opinion on that. Um, but you'd only really better tell me if they're attractive if you'd actually first seen them. So if someone you've never seen or never met, you're not going to know, or if you knew nothing about them, you wouldn't be able to tell me if they're attractive in the first place. Sure. So sort of no power be gained. 
And what we've really realized, and I think particularly with a state like Qatar, which is not unlike the US or the UK, developed over many centuries, but was really you know, quickly developed over a number of decades, it's really over the last couple of years or last of 10, 15 years, tried to raise sort of awareness of its very existence. And what we've really noticed, I think, with a lot of countries that do this, whether they you know, host big events or just try and sort of put themselves out there a bit more, by raising awareness of their existence, it also raises awareness of some of their issues at home. Mm. So, you know, I heard very, very little media about Qatar's human rights issues before it got the World Cup, for example. Now it's sort of one of the most talked about things there is. So I think what the, the concept of soft disempowerment really sort of gets to the heart of is as states try and acquire soft power, there's always going to be the risk of negative scrutiny, which in many cases can actually disempower them as opposed to getting power. Um, and sort of one of the questions I get asked most about Qatar and the World Cup was, you know, was this a good thing for Qatar? And, we've, you know, this could be a really good example, I think, of where you've got a state who's tried to use a World Cup to get soft power. But actually, maybe what's happened is it's actually brought about more soft disempowerment. So, of course, the big question would be is, is Qatar worse off now than when it was in 2010 when it actually got the World Cup? The soft power sort of really looks to add to, to Joseph Nice's uh, sort of concept. And it's really about how states through trying to be attractive can end up being seen as very, very unattractive. Mm. So to turn to Qatar, what what was it then that prompted Qatar to try and pursue this? Because, I mean, forgive my ignorance if this is not the case, but I don't see Qatar as a sort of traditional footballing nation. What was it about the Football World Cup specifically and sort of generally why were they trying to engage with this in 2010? That, that really cuts sort of the heart to the, to the, to the, well, the biggest question you could really ask, I guess. I think if we look at soft power as the power of attraction, again, it, I find it quite useful sometimes to sort of relate states or to sort of human beings, if you like. To say, for example, I'm a you know, fantastic actor, you know, I, I'm really, really skilled, that might be my attraction. But what I really need is a stage in which to showcase mm. I'm really good. You know, I, I could be the best actor ever. You could be. I'm sure Maybe you are. We just I'm sure you are. We'll <laughs> give that to you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, but, you know, you just, you just, we don't, you know, if, unless you get this opportunity, you may never know. And I think what states look to do is they will look to try and secure what NICOR's forms of strategic communication. So these are things that, you know, we live in a society now full of Twitter and everything else. There's so much information floating about. Uh, you kind of get this sort of sort of state of white noise, as it were. Now, if you can host something or if you can secure something in the world, uh, whatever it may be, which gets the whole world's attention for a certain period of time, that's a great way of showing how attractive you can be. So it basically cuts through the white noise if you like, of the information society. Now, if we look at what sort of things you may do to sort of, you know, secure that stage or strategic communication, you know, you might host a UN summit um, or a WTO conference. But I think probably the most global things we have in this entire world is probably Olympic Games or a Football World Cup, a FIFA World Cup. Mm. You know, I, I talk to my students about if I can't think of anything bigger that catches an audience like a World Cup or the Summer Olympic Games. That's, that's before, you know, there could be a terrorist attack, of course, which is unplanned for, but, you know, an actual planned event. So I think Qatar, like many countries, they've seen this as a great opportunity to, one, raise awareness of their existence, um, 
you know, a lot of my students hadn't heard of Qatar before the World Cup, and of course, pretty much everyone has now. Mm. But also, it's a fantastic way, bearing in mind, you know, the whole the whole world, pretty much, or a significant proportion of that world, is going to have its eyes focused on Qatar in, in 2021, 2022. So it's a great, great way of sort of getting across your soft power. Um, so I think Qatar see this as a great stage, despite, as you mentioned, their, you know, their lack of pedigree when it comes to sort of football history. From the opposite direction, in a way, what what was the thinking for FIFA, football's organising body, to actually award it to Qatar? Because presumably it was a it was a contest with several countries competing to host it. Why was Qatar the choice that was made? Yeah, I mean it's obviously very very difficult to to know exactly why, and there's there's been books written on this by by numerous people as to sort of why FIFA um, gave it to Qatar and and everything else. At the end of the day, football and FIFA is pretty much a business. And that, that annoys a lot of people, but that, that is the truth. Sport is big business. And I think from FIFA's perspective, I think if you look at where we've had the last World Cups, you know, South Africa 2010, the first ever African World Cup, um, you know, Brazil, okay, they, they've hosted it before. But you look at Russia, the first ever World Cup there, and then obviously Qatar in 2022 will be the first of the Middle Eastern World Cup. So I think it's really for FIFA, it's simply a case of they're just trying to expand their market. And like any business, you know, um, the money sort of tends to go to certain areas of the world which can produce and deliver. And, you know, I mean, hosting these events is is big, big business. Um, And it's very, very expensive for for many countries. However, you know, obviously Qatar, one of the highest GDP per capita in the world, I think this is a country that can host it financially and make it a huge spectacle. So I think from FIFA's perspective, I think it, it was really just a sort of business opportunity here in terms of trying to sort of break into new markets. Um, and, and as you mentioned at the beginning, there has been a bit of a backlash, to say the least, mm. um, in the ensuing period. What's been the sort of foundation of that backlash? Why have Qatar come in for some criticism? Well, again, that, that's a key question. And again, it, there's a lot of sort of theories out there, I guess. <laughs> I mean, some theories would say, you know, I know England lost out um, in that bidding process to Qatar and, and also to Russia. And, you know, I, I guess if you look at where the sort of main criticism is coming from, it is the Guardian, the Sunday Times, and it's these English newspapers. So one theory is, you know, this is sort of uh, sour grapes. And that, that, that somewhat, when I was in Qatar, that was sort of one of the themes that came through. Well, you know, certain countries are jealous that little old Qatar have got this World Cup. I think from a more sort of academic perspective, however, I think this is just a really good example of the way soft disempowerment works. And I think these mega events, such as the World Cup or Olympic Games, they do act as, as I said, stages for countries to show their soft power. But in raising awareness of their issues, they also act as a great stage and opportunity for other non-state actors to also raise their soft power like the guardian like the new you know and uh, new york times with the, the sunday times but also these sort of non-governmental organizations um, like amnesty for example and human rights watch and i think really that that's just the case and this is what was happening i think that qatar from a socio-political perspective probably isn't ready to host a world cup i think you know actually the sporting bit in terms of tournament i think will probably be quite good sort of Olympic field because it's such a small country. But I just don't think it's ready to host it in social political terms. And I think, again, this goes back really to the fact Qatar has developed over such a short period of time. 
I mean, it only gained its independence in 1971. And I think sometimes with some of these smaller countries, uh, which have mass wealth, they sometimes get a little bit ahead of themselves and they'll go for everything under the sun, you know, cut on our own half of London or whatever it may be and Mm. everything else. But what they sometimes lack, because it's happening so quickly, is sort of getting their house in order domestically. And I think this is really what, what's happened is a lot of these organizations are looking at the World Cup and seeing it as a great opportunity to, you know, pull Qatar up uh, and highlight some of its issues at home, whether it be human rights issues or whatever else it may be. I think this just has been a great opportunity for others to pull Qatar up and highlight some of its issues at home. And I mean, that's not to say that there isn't anything tangible to these accusations, right? I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're serious things. Um, to be clear, if people haven't heard of them, the, the allegations include the human rights um, protections around the people who are actually building the infrastructure of this event. Mm-hmm. And so, sort of not separate, but aside from the way that Qatari c- like citizens themselves are treated, it's it's about how the demands of the infrastructure needed to host one of these events is having an impact on the human rights of people that work there, right? It's is that Would that be fair, mm-hmm. do you think? It's not just about the situation before they were awarded it. It's about the impact of having it awarded. It, uh, well, yes and no. Um, okay. And I think because you are absolutely right. Basically, what the World Cup has done has given Qatar a deadline of where it needs to have all of its interest or majority of its infrastructure in place because, you know, again... You know, say, for example, well, if we look at the World Cup as a stage, Qatar wants to present itself in the best possible way. You know, it doesn't want the world turning up and only half the country's been built. It wants everything finished. The problem you've got is the country was building stupid amounts um, of new infrastructure, a whole new city, hotels, whatever it may be, before it got the World Cup. But then it did get the World Cup, and now all of a sudden it's got eight or nine stadiums to build on top of that. And it's got to get everything finished. So I think what, what's happened here really is because they, they've added so much pressure to themselves to make sure everything's done by 2022, the country and certain people um, within it have unfortunately cut some corners, um, you know, when it comes to, to human rights issues. And, you know, a lot of people in Qatar are earning a lot of money. Um, and that not, that's not just Qataris. There's a lot of British organizations who have been contracted to actually go over and American firms to go over and, and build a construction on behalf of Qatar, who have also been pulled out for cutting corners. But, you know, again, I think it just comes back to Qatar perhaps a bit off a little bit more they can chew with the World Cup, and it, I just think it wouldn't have hurt for them to, to wait a little longer. You know, um, and of course, you know, uh, quite right, if, if there are human rights issues over there, then they, they deserve to be pulled up on them, most surely. So just, just from a sort of PR perspective, mm. were Qatar not aware of the potential for this backlash in your communication with Qatari officials and stuff. Do you think there's a case of sort of slight naivety maybe in the scrutiny that actually would be put upon them once they took this? Yeah, I think I think naivety is the best word. And I think for, for all the Qataris, majority of the Qataris, and certainly policymakers who I spoke to, the, the sort of one thing they, they mentioned when I asked them sort of a question like that was they, they've been shocked, you know, just how much scrutiny this has brought. And I think, you know, I think it's fair to say I, I can't remember any other event which has had so much scrutiny, whether it's sport or anything else. So, but again, I think it's just a case of, as you said, I think it's naivety. This is the first time that, you know, Qatar hosting a, an event of this magnitude and with no disrespect to Qatar, but 
as I said, they develop very, very quickly. It's not like the States or the UK who have years and years and years to develop, but also to develop those sort of responsive, you know, PR sort of machinery, if you like, or disaster recovery sort of communication platform, whatever it may be. For Qatar, I think it's with certainly one of naivety, but I think this will also be for them domestically a really good learning curve for how and what they need to do in future um, in terms of actually conducting their foreign policy. Thinking now just about the countries that will be attending the World Cup, in in your research, have you looked at the effect from a soft power point of view that the attendees could feel? For example, countries from the West who claim to have a, a sort of spotless record on human rights. Are there risks involved in terms of reputations for those countries? Uh, yes, there are. Um, I don't think those countries have pulled up too much, if I'm honest. The way these things tend to work is the second the event actually starts, the focus just tends to be on the sport, whether it's Olympics or it's football. And then you have this little bit afterwards, perhaps, you know, where you know they, someone might look around and go, well, hey, that wasn't done or this wasn't done. So, But then again, saying that, who, who knows? I mean, I think we're, we're sort of, we're entering unfamiliar waters a little bit with Qatar just because of the amount of negative press the country's received. But historically, just looking at previous events, as I said, it, it sort of tends to, the second that, that first whistle goes, the focus of everyone just seems to be on the sport, really. And it will be very interesting as well, I think, to see what sort of fans will turn up to the World Cup, if Americans and British will actually go um, and actually visit Qatar during the tournament, or whether this will be more of a sort of regional Arab sort of games uh, will be very interesting to see as well. Mm, yeah, interesting. Because I was, I was just thinking about uh, yeah, what you were saying before the, before the whistle blows and before the whistle blew this summer in, in Russia at the World Cup. It was all over the news sort of in light of the Skripal affair, whether, whether British dignitaries would even go. There were even a couple of calls for the team not to go, not the English team not to even attend the World Cup, which seemed pretty yeah. crazy. But then it's become the phenomenon of our summer, hasn't it? How far England got in the World Cup itself, kind of regardless of where it was hosted. What do you think was the kind of soft power impact for Russia's global standing from hosting the World Cup this summer? Well, I think Russia's a very, very interesting case study because I think similar to, I mean, certainly not to the same degree like Qatar, but... You know, it certainly had its fair share of soft disempowerment. There were fears around, you know, uh, obviously hooliganism and how certain groups might be treated um, during Russia. But actually, I mean, speaking to, I was talking to my students about it the other day. As far as they can remember, it's one of the, the best World Cups they've ever seen. Absolutely. And I think, you know, from an organisational perspective, it was pretty flawless. I, I can't remember anything really going wrong um, over in Russia. But I think we tend to, I mean, sport sort of seems to wash away quite a few sort of moral issues um, that may have been evident beforehand. And we sort of just, you know, look back on it in positive terms. And I think the 2018 World Cup from a UK perspective will be always considered to be a huge success. It's sort of, you know, it's sort of relayed um, as somewhat of a, you know, the beginning of a new revolution for the English team. And you sort of then find it difficult to find the sort of wider social political critique you had before. So I think for, 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 you know, for Russia, I think it's been a great soft power tool. For Putin, it's been, I think, fantastic as well for him personally. But it is a really good example, um, as he said, as, you know, the second the whistle starts, everything just sort of stops from a social political perspective. Um, and it would be interesting to see if England had gone out earlier, whether or not the, the media would have realigned a little bit.
mm. um, on those sort of wider issues. But of course, as long as the football's on and you know certain countries are doing well, that gives the media enough to write as it is. So perhaps those other issues that were there before, they just sort of go to the bottom of the pile, as it were. Okay, well, I think that's all we've got time for now. Paul, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, then. And don't forget to download Paul's article, The Soft Power, Soft Disempowerment Nexus, The Case of Qatar. It's free to access in the September issue of International Affairs. You don't have to be a subscriber to download it. Just visit academic.oup.com IA and take a look at the latest issue. And that's it for this week. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate and subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever platform you choose to use to listen to podcasts. And don't forget to follow Chatham House on Twitter at Chatham House. <laughs> I've never said that bit before. Sorry, your face was it? <laughs> at Chatham House. I've never said that bit before, but I'm working on my engaging face for radio. <laughs> well, because they do all of them on Facebook Live now, don't they? It's they ridiculous. Do, yeah. Like you, you actually can't have a face for radio anymore. You can't e- if you look like that. You can't even. <laughs> you do can't radio. even be on the radio. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to have to change stream. the paradigm. What, what is it? You've got a face, face for, for face for editing. Puppetry. <laughs> Editing is good. Face <laughs> for editing. Yeah, um, yeah, I like that. That offends actually quite a lot of people. But you are an editor. With. Yeah. And I, I actually, I do editing as yeah. well. So we can, so we can, we can make that. jokes about editing. Yeah, okay. uh, yes, and as mentioned earlier, if you have any <laughs> geographically disparate friends, particularly <laughs> geographically disparate friends, or indeed any friends, please tell them about the podcast because uh, we often find that word of mouth is the way. Yeah. To spread the word. And they might like it too. They might you like it too. You never know. You never know. And hey... Even if they don't, you'll know that it's made us very happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And then I can bring cake into the studio. Indeed. And I'm, no. yeah, and we've not had that for ages and no. it doesn't feel like TMS anymore and I don't like it. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll be back hopefully in a brighter media studio to record some new interviews, which will be available in a couple of weeks. But in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston and you've been listening to Undercurrents.